Amen. Praise God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. Um, most of you know by now that I'm a bivocational pastor. And, and, and as a bivoca bivocational pastor, um, that simply means that, that, that pastoring is not the only job that I have um, in, in my life. I, I also work for the federal government. Um, and at my government job, I used to have a quote attached at the bottom of my email signature uh, from Harry S. Truman. And that quote was, you can accomplish anything in life, provided that you don't mind who gets the credit. Now that is an axiom. That is a fact of life. Including in ministry, really. It's a fact of life. However, however if I could, for, for our sake this morning, I want to tweak that quote slightly and, and, and if I had an opportunity to tweak it, particularly for the Christian, I would say you can accomplish God's work in ministry, provided you only want him to get the credit. One pastor uh, once captured this, this truth, this axiom in life, when it came to the calling of preaching the gospel, when he said this. He said, preaching is probably the only job where you can take no credit for the successes, but still can take pretty much all the blame for the failures. I think, I really think he's right. That's a good word. John the Baptist, in fact, had, had, a, had a similar sentiment um, about, about basically not taking credit at, towards, the, towards the latter end of his ministry. John spent his whole life preparing for the ministry of preparing the way for Jesus. And then Jesus finally shows up. He comes on the scene and John baptizes Jesus. God speaks approvingly from heaven about Jesus. The spirit descends powerfully on, uh, down to earth onto Jesus. And then Jesus' ministry explodes and John's lifelong ministry instantly begins a slow, methodical departure to the background. It didn't take long for his followers, John's followers, John's disciples to notice this slow, methodical departure. In John chapter 3, they came to John saying, Rabbi, who he, I'm sorry, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. And John responds like we all should. John responds in this way. He says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. This joy of mine that puts me in the background and puts him in the foreground. John said in John chapter 3 verse 30 to put a, put a, a, a linchpin on this, he must increase, but I must decrease. At the end of the day, the Christian life is about learning how to increasingly move behind Jesus until he is all that is left to be seen of us by other people watching. The Spirit of God will always rest boldly upon such men and women who are committed to putting themselves in the background in order that Jesus might resume the foreground. And Paul knew that, which is why we find him in this text trying to explain to the Corinthians this very countercultural mindset as it relates to his sharing of the gospel. And I say counter to the culture because 
oftentimes the world wants you to take the spotlight. This world's wisdom is Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, me on display. However, for the last couple of weeks, Paul has been laying out the idea that everything in God is different from the way the world wants to do things and the way the world sees things. And the case is no different in this morning's text. The first thing we see in this morning's text is that spirit-empowered preaching never relies upon human wisdom or eloquence. Verse 1, it says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Lofty speech or wisdom. What is meant by lofty speech or wisdom? One could say that lofty speech in some ways is the presentation, the human presentation, the way that you say it. Can you move me with your eloquence? One also could say that lofty wisdom is the content. If speech is what you say, or, or rather speech is how you say it and the way you say it, then wisdom is what you say. Can you amaze me with your rhetoric and give me something that dazzles me, something that resonates with me? Not sure how much you've paid attention to this, but we are very often captive in this culture to fancy words wrapped in fancy packages. One of the reasons why disinformation and misinformation have captured such a foothold in the American culture in the, and the broader global culture is because most people who share it know this truth. They know this reality that if you can package what you say and how you say it well enough, it really doesn't matter what you say. Many of us will buy it even if it's true or not. And most of you are probably nodding your heads and saying yes on the inside and amen on the inside. And many of you are probably saying, that's very true. I know a lot of friends who are prey to that. I'm not talking about your friends. I'm talking about you. I'm talking about me. You see, most politicians and most manufacturers and most advertisement advertising firms and other people that are vying for your attention and vying for my attention have given billions of dollars to the social media juggernauts that we frequently visit to learn and they give they give this billion or billions of dollars to them in order to learn where we're from and to learn how old we are and to learn what type of food we like and to learn what type of posts we like or what type of posts we love, or what type of posts that we ha, 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 right? You got the different emoticons, and they're tracking all of that. And they're tracking what videos we spend the most time watching. And they're tracking what type of animal you would be after you fill out that silly questionnaire on Facebook. It says you would be a panther or a monkey or whatever. And they're tracking all of that in an effort to package what they're selling in a way that we'll hear it and in a way that we'll accept it and receive it and buy it. 
And that's why so many lies carry so much power in our current cultural moment because there's so much information out there that are, that's flooding the internet about who we are and then that information is taken in and then it's massaged to speak directly to you. Even the social media guys have invested billions of dollars on the psychology and the science of keeping you scrolling. Just keeping you scrolling Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, over and over and over again. And many of them have built an entire environment with algorithms that are designed to do one thing. Keep you scrolling. How do they do that? By showing you whatever you need to see in order to keep scrolling. It's one of the reasons why you got 10,000 friends, but you only see posts for about 100 of them. Because they have curated what you see in order to keep you scrolling. If the other 10,000 friends aren't providing anything that resonates with you, chances are you won't see a lot of it. You'll see the only things that resonate with you. And why is that? Because in the battle of your heart or our heart, everyone is pretty thoroughly convinced that if you package it well enough, it ultimately doesn't matter if it is right or it's good or it's healthy or it's true. It still can be effective in winning your heart and capturing your undivided attention. And so into this cesspool weighs the words of Paul. In verse 1 again, it says, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Paul's words are so relevant for us today because he is basically saying that in the middle of a culture of false promises wrapped in pretty packaging, the testimony of God, that being the gospel, enters in and works fine and powerfully all by itself. It doesn't need any of the pretty packaging. And why is that? Well, there's at least two reasons. One... Because the gospel alone carries the power to save. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The saving of the unbeliever is not determined by the excellencies of the speaker or the amount of human wisdom or philosophy that speaker possesses. And that speaker is able to communicate but rather the saving of the unbeliever is only determined by the accurate, sincere, pure preaching of the gospel alone. And alone is very important because it gives you my second reason for why the gospel doesn't need pretty packaging. Trying to bolster the power of the gospel by lacing it with other stuff empties the gospel of its power to save. Paul said earlier to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with the words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. You see, oftentimes we internally believe that we need the gospel to be wrapped in other fancy packages in order for it to be embraced. Sometimes we say wrap it in our favorite celebrity personalities and folks will embrace it. If we get enough celebrities to embrace it, 
wrap it in our cultural sensibilities like hyper-consumerism or hyper-individualism. And to say it another way, make the gospel all about the amazing things God is going to do for me, me and mine. Not, don't worry about anybody else. Just, just concentrate on what the gospel is going to do for me and mine and tap into my sense of individualism and consumerism. And if you do that, folks will embrace it. And oftentimes we wrap it in these fat, fancy packages and folks do embrace it. But they end up embracing an entirely different gospel altogether. You see, whenever you try to add to the gospel, you empty the gospel of its power. It loses its bite like adding sugar to coffee. I love adding sugar to coffee, by the way, so I'm okay with losing the bite. But to preserve its life-giving power, the gospel must, must, must not be paired with lofty eloquence or wisdom of this world. It can't be. Because when you do it, now it's saving people to that lofty eloquence or that wisdom versus saving people to the potency of the gospel itself. This is the main reason why the word of God takes primary authority in the church. We don't get up on Sundays and pontificate with our own narratives. We unpack Holy Scripture because this is where the power lies. God is not giving me authority to stand up here and tell everybody what I think. God is giving me authority to unpack his word and to share it. And to tell everybody what he thinks and to tell everybody, tell everybody what he has said. Anything else isn't biblical preaching. Anything else is just human philosophy and pop psychology. Which leads me to my next point. Spirit-empowered preaching always contains at its center the message of Christ crucified. Verse 2, read with me. It says, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ. And him crucified. We aren't given authority to center human philosophies and wisdom and eloquence in our Christian preaching. We are called to put front and center the testimony of God, the message of the gospel. And Paul makes no secret what he considers to be the essence of the Christian message, Christ crucified. He writes to the Corinthian church that he decided to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So what does it mean to preach Christ crucified? Well, let me start by what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you only preach about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And it doesn't mean that you only preach about salvation. In fact, Paul in this letter alone speaks about what we eat. Paul speaks about sexuality, Paul speaks about marriage, Paul speaks about singleness, Paul speaks about spiritual gifts, Paul speaks about pride, Paul speaks about lawsuits, Paul speaks about division. And so what exactly is Paul saying when he says he only came preaching Christ crucified? He's saying this, that at the center of every call and every challenge, and at the center of every hope and every comfort for the Christian. And at the center of every rebuke and every reproof for the Christian that he gives and that he makes is the message of Jesus Christ crucified. In other words, why should I ultimately have hope in this terribly broken world? Romans 8 
chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 17 through 18, we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Why should I have hope in this terrible, broken world? Christ crucified. Did you see that? Why should I ultimately have hope in a terribly broken world? Because we suffer with him, we shall reign with him. Christ crucified. Why should I stop being selfish and pursuing my own way instead of pursuing what is best for others and laying down my time and my talent and my treasure for their sake? Why should I do that? Mark chapter 8, verse 34. And calling, to the crowd, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross like me, and follow me. Why should I stop being selfish and pursue my own way instead of pursuing what is best for others? Christ crucified. You see that? Why should I stop seeking to live like the world and follow the world's patterns and follow the world's philosophies in my life. Galatians chapter 6, verse 13 through 14. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that you may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Why should I die to the world and its philosophies and its wisdom? Because Jesus died, Christ crucified. And so because he died for me, I die to the world. Christ crucified is the message that forces us to die to the world, die to our flesh, die to our desires. Christ crucified is the message that drives us towards selfless living versus selfish living. Christ crucified is, is the message that is giving us hope in a terribly unbroken world. The Corinthians have forgotten this message. And this is the reason we see the pride and the worldliness creeping in. And this is the reason why we see our divisions and our pride and our worldliness slowly creep in. Whenever we forget the message. And it's not just the message we preach, but it's the message that you live at home. Whenever you forget that message... That's when all the worldliness and the fleshly desires creep in and gain a foothold in your life. Every day that you wake saying to yourself, I'm following Christ should be a day that you are saying, I'm dying to the world. I'm dying to Im uh, imperfections or dying to Im immorality rather than fornication and pornography. And I'm dying to gossip and I'm dying uh, to talking about people and, uh, and I'm dying to pride and I'm dying to arrogance. Why? Because Jesus died for me. That's what it means to preach Christ crucified. But it also means to preach Christ crucified in a way of remembrance. In other words, every action, every work, every word, everything that you do should be done under the light of the cross. If, if we would only live our lives in light of the cross. The next time you say you don't have patience to deal with your coworkers or patience to deal with your, with your spouse or patience to deal with your parents or patience, patience to deal with your children, think of the patience that was displayed for you by Jesus in dying on the cross. 
The next time you're tempted to engage in sex before marriage or outside of your marriage, the next time you're tempted to pay back hurt with hurt, think of the price that Christ paid for you. He who knew no sin became sin. In order that we might be delivered from sin. The word says that Paul had decided in verse 2. Paul had decided to preach nothing but Christ crucified. The word, that word decided can also be expressed as determined or resolved. In other words, Paul is saying that he made a calculated, wholehearted decision to preach the testimony of God and Christ crucified no matter the cost. Because there will always be the temptation for us to proclaim a message of salvation that requires no crucifixion at its center. And why is that? Well, quite simply because the masses do not want to hear such a message. Remember, the message of the cross, as we talked about last week, is foolishness to those that are perishing. So the temptation will come and people urging you to ease up on what you're proclaiming. The temptation will come when people say, People say things like, all roads lead to heaven. Why are you trying to make this exclusive? The temptation will come where people will, when people will say, well, well, that's your truth and I have my truth. So, you know, just because it's true for you doesn't mean it's true for me. Or the temptation will come when people say, well, everyone just has to follow their own hearts. Paul had decided, however, resolved, determined to preach and know nothing but Christ crucified. Temptation will be to turn to this wisdom so that, so, that, so that folks will be more accepting of your message. But remember, when you add to the message in order to make it more accepting, the message loses its power. Paul saw this as a possible temptation that, that Timothy, his young son in ministry, might even experience. Which is why he warns Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He tells Timothy to preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. He says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. They'll say things like, follow your own heart. They'll say things like, your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. They'll say things like, all roads lead to heaven. And having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And so they'll curate their Twitter feed so that the only people that they have are the people saying the things that they agree, they agree with. And they'll, and they'll set up their podcast list so that the only people that they have on the list are the people saying the things that they already agree with. But we must remain determined. To preach and know nothing but Christ and Christ crucified. Spirit and power preaching is delivered. My third point. Spirit and power preaching is delivered in human weakness, fear, reverence, and complete dependency. Spirit and power preaching is delivered in human weakness, fear, reverence, and complete dependency. Verse 3, it says, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Weakness, fear, and much 
trembling. Paul speaks as a man who has experienced tremendous suffering for the sake of Christ. If you take note in the book of Acts, Paul goes through a number of beatings for the sake of Christ. He goes through a number of imprisonments through his life, all for the sake of the gospel. And I'm sure the Corinthians are aware of Paul's suffering. By the time, in fact, that he got to Corinth to even proclaim the gospel to the Corinthians, he had been beaten and imprisoned in Philippi. He had been stoned and left, left for dead in one city. He had been rejected in a, another city. He had been rejected for the most part in Athens. He had been run out of all, a, a, number, a number of other cities. And now he was arriving in Corinth. This was a man that was physically weary. And I'm sure at times this was a man that was psychologically weary and yet undeterred. Even his opponents, Paul's opponents spoke of his bodily weakness. They said in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Can you hear these cats saying this? Can you, can you imagine them saying this as they're talking about Paul and talking about the letters that he's writing? And they're saying, well, what do you think about this dude? And they say, well, I mean, you know, his letters give you the impression that he is this very imposing presence. But when you see this guy in person, he ain't all that. He leaves a whole lot to be desired. Well, how eloquent is he? I've seen better, bro. I've seen a lot better. So, so let's get this. Here we have this weak-looking man with subpar eloquence delivering a message that just sounds ridiculous on the surface and goes against all of our ideas and opinions and philosophies that we've cultivated in this world. So why on earth does anybody follow him? And the one word is God. It's because God, it is in weakness that God is able to use us mightily, not for the purpose of us looking good, but for the purpose of him being glorified. The Spirit of God works most mightily in those who knows their weak or who know their weaknesses. And instead of masking them, they boast in them that God may receive all the glory and that he doesn't, and that that person doesn't receive any of the glory. Paul also says that when he came to Corinth, that he came in fear and in trembling, much trembling. This probably means one of two things. One, that he understood the magnitude of the call as he was entering into Corinth, or two, that he was aware of the dangers surrounding him while in Corinth. And I believe it's probably a mixture of both, but it's most likely the second reason. And my reason for leaning in that direction is because of the vision that Paul experienced while he is in Corinth the first time. He's in Corinth, and in Acts chapter 18, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, and he said this, listen, do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. While he's there, God sends a word of comfort to him. You see that? Because Paul is there, he's like, man, there's a lot of animosity here, a lot of friction here, I don't know what's going to happen. God says, no, I'm here, don't be silent, keep speaking, I'm with you. 
Don't be afraid. Keep speaking. I'm with you. No one will attack you. No one will harm you. So Paul came to Corinth in fear of his life, but his fear did not deter him because even in his fear, he placed his trust and his confidence in God. If anything for Paul, that fear served as a focus for him. It showed him the seriousness of the calling and the ministry that God had entrusted to him. This thing was about life and death for Paul. He understood that. It focused his attention. This thing is about eternity. This thing, and, and even, for, even for the early church, it was about the present life. So Paul, in weakness and in fear and in trembling, depended solely on God to perform the work that he had been called to do. That's where God is most clearly seen, brothers and sisters, where we are totally dependent on him to do the work. Paul didn't need to necessarily be impressive because he was speaking about a God who already was. Beware of the leader who is satisfied getting credit rather than deferring it back to God. Beware of the arrogant leader, the, the one who wants to be treated like a king. Beware of the leader who can't stop bragging about the size of a church. Beware of a leader who's looking to make a name for himself. Beware of the leader more concerned about meeting quotas and numbers than discipling and shepherding souls. Beware of the leader who does not approach the pulpit acknowledging weakness apart from God. And the leader who does not approach the pulpit in fear and in trembling over what God has called them to do. Those are the leaders that we must take heed of. When leaders are seeking glory for their own, they have less time to seek God's glory. When they're seeking and concentrating on their own agendas, they have less time to concentrate on God's agenda. When they are too busy looking at themselves, they have less time to look at God. I'm learning this, you know, the older I get, and I've said this, I said this 10 years ago. And, I've learned, and I'm learning this even more now, 10 years later. There's only one room for, uh, one, there's, only, there's only room for one in the pulpit. And it ain't me. It's God. It's coming to this text and it's unpacking this text and it's making sure that I put you in contact with God. Not simply me and my ideas and my philosophy. God moves most mightily in us when we make every effort to make ourselves invisible so that it would almost seem like God was speaking directly to you. Verse 4, we see the spirit-empowered preaching is proclaimed in an unlikely power. Spirit-empowered preaching is proclaimed in an unlikely power. Verse 4, it says, In my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and, uh, and of power. When we hear that word, Spirit and of power, our minds typically move directly to signs and miracles. But this power Paul is describing is probably not actually that. Now, that's not to say that Paul isn't there performing signs and miracles because we know that Paul does perform signs and miracles. It's just that that's not the primary focus for Paul. Paul, and I'll tell you why. Paul uses the term power to describe the message of the cross. The cross. 
Paul uses the word power, for example, like we talked about last week in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 1. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. Here's another reason why he is probably not talking about signs and wonders. Because earlier, Paul makes a contrast between signs and wonders and power. Chapter 1, verse 22 and verse uh, through 24, he says, for Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews because it is not the signs they were looking for and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God. You see the distinction? He says, you're looking for signs. I'm bringing power. What's that power? Christ crucified. We, like the Jews, sometimes liken power only to signs and wonders. And therefore, we, like the Jews, have problems seeing the gospel in terms of power as we are. However, the power that is found in the gospel is only unlikely because we don't cherish it as we are. You see, when we consider that what we've been given as Christians who profess the Bible, when we consider that, that what we've been given is in fact, at least what we believe and we profess to believe, is in fact the word of God. That what we've been given is in fact God speaking to us. That what we've been given is in fact God revealing mysteries about his nature and mysteries about his plans and mysteries about his will. That what we've been given is God's primary ordained means to speak to his people. When we understand that, then what could be more powerful than the gospel that we've been entrusted with? What could be more powerful than hearing what God has to say in this book that he has so chosen to reveal himself in? What could be more powerful than the preaching of the message of the cross? We don't see it as powerful because it has become too common to us. And because it's become too common to us, we look past it in search of power. When the, the message of the cross is life-altering, life-transforming, life-changing. We don't see it as the power of God because maybe oftentimes we aren't even looking for it. We're, we're, coming, we're tuning in to church online or we're coming to church at, uh, or, or in person or we're tuning in to podcasts just looking for opinions, looking for more entertainment, looking for more of the stuff that we get Monday through, Monday through Saturday. Life coaching, pop psychology about how to get promotions on jobs or how to get a man or how to get a woman or partisan attacks about political parties we don't like. Or maybe we're looking for someone who's going to make us laugh or someone who's going to make us cry or someone who's going to stir the emotions but have very little gospel substance. We're looking for something to overwhelm our sense of entertainment 
and to, and to, and to soothe our craving that we have in our lives every other, in every other area of our life and we expect it in our churches to entertain us, to give us fancy packaging. But this approach to preaching and this approach to worship conditions us to just expect nothing of God. I mean, it probably is fun and it feels good when we leave, but it is powerless. Paul understood this, which is why he said in verse 4, my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. His wisdom was of no value to him, even though pro probably Paul had more wisdom than everybody he was speaking to. In terms of human wisdom, well-educated, trained, trained by, by some, of the, some of the best Jewish teachers, trained, I imagine, and scholars believe in some of the best Greek schools, well-acquainted with Roman law. This was a well-educated man, and he said, yet all of that education means nothing in light of the cross. Lastly, spirit-empowered preaching aims to cause men to place their faith in God and not the wisdom of men. Spirit-empowered preaching aims to cause men to place their faith in God and not the wisdom of men. Verse 5, it says that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Here, Paul is implying something that should alarm us. It should alarm us. Look very closely at what he's saying. Because if, 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 if we take Paul at his word, then what Paul is saying is that there is a kind of preaching that can cause men to place their faith in the wisdom of men rather than the wisdom of God. Or to say it another way, there is a kind of preaching, a certain type of preaching, and a certain type of listening that can cause our faith to be placed in men rather than in God. What type of preaching and listening is that? And it's important that I say listening to because sometimes we're not even hearing all of the right things. We're, we're just hearing the things that we want to hear. And so what type of preaching and listening is that? Well, it's a preaching and listening filled with human wisdom and opinions instead of the word of God. It's a preaching and listening characterized by its ability to entertain rather than point people to God. It's a preaching and listening that does not Hold Christ crucified at its center. I mean, this type of preaching will ultimately draw because we love to hear the wisdom of men. But it will draw men to men rather than drawing men to God. People will come to church based on the style in which the preacher preaches. Or they'll come to church based on the cool things that are happening in the church. And they'll, they'll come to church based on the interesting topics like politics and social activism and race pride or race animosity or economics or re relationships. I mean, you name it. That's not to say any of that should not be covered. But when it becomes front and center, then all of a sudden... People are there based on the wisdom of men rather than God. Thus they come to place their faith in man rather than God. So to combat this, Paul says he preaches not with human wisdom or with eloquence, trying to draw men with entertaining presentations, 
But instead, he does one thing. He pours every ounce of himself into preaching the cross of Jesus Christ. Because in that cross is the power for salvation. The power for transformation. And as a result, when men and women are listening to that preaching and they're hearing that whole message then they are no longer drawn to man's wisdom. They are drawn to God's wisdom. And their faith is not resting in man. Their faith is resting in God. And that should be our only aim, saints, that we proclaim and we preach and we share and we live in such a way that, our, that the faith of, of those that are listening to us rests not in us but rests in God. That's what I'm trying to do. I pray I'm doing it. And I know I'll, I'll probably fail on many Sundays to do it, but that's what I'm aiming to do. To preach Christ, Christ crucified, in order that your faith may rest, not in anything I say that might be eloquent, but that your faith might rest in God and God alone. When the highs and the lows and the mountains and the cliffs and, and the ebb and flow of life is, is moving to and fro, that your faith might rest in God and God alone. And that's our, that's our only aim. Not just my aim, your aim. Our aim is the same aim as John the Baptist. That we slowly fade to the background. That we decrease in order that our Lord and Savior may increase. So that when people look at us, they don't necessarily see us. They see Jesus in us. Amen. Eternal God, we love you.